This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you, as always. Plenty to talk about today, as always. Politics, immigration, LNG, GDP. (laughs) We've got it all. By the way, during the week, during the week, please join us, Fox Business Network, FBN. The name of the show is Kudlow. And it plays from 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And by some crazy reason, you can't get us at 4. You can just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. And here on the radio, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryCudlowShow.com. LarryCudlowShow.com. Be heard all across the country, throughout the world all reaches of the solar system, including the Milky Way. So, let's start with immigration. Immigration. Roughly 8 million illegals have crossed the border. By the way, two borders. I don't want to forget. There's a northern border problem as well as the southern border. It's mostly on the southern border, but the northern border problem as well. Roughly 8 million illegals have crossed in Joe Biden's presidency. It's an incredible number. It's an incredible story. Immigration was the number one issue in the Iowa caucus. It was the number one issue in the New Hampshire primary, both of uh, which obviously were taken strongly by former President Donald Trump. He's had this issue since he first came down the escalator in uh, August of 2015, I think it was August of 2015, of Trump Tower. He did a miraculous job uh, in his presidency. Joe Biden unwound everything, and we have this catastrophe. Crime, sex trafficking, drug trafficking, no borders, no sovereignty, Mexican cartels running the border. And this is what the Bidens wanted, right? Open borders. The left wants open borders. They don't believe in America first. They don't believe in American boundaries or sovereignty. They don't believe in the legal systems. It's an incredible story. And gets worse. And I guess what I want to talk about, we'll visit with this at various points in the show today. I mean, there's negotiation going on in the Senate for the outlines of a bill that is just terrible. Just terrible. 
and I believe is dead on arrival in the House. That's what Speaker Mike Johnson has said, and Johnson's right. President Trump, or let me say former President Trump, is very much against this bill, but more or less, I mean, we don't know details are dribbling out, more or less, the Biden deal would allow, get this, 5,000 illegals a day, allow 5,000 a day. And then somehow he closed the border. But it isn't even that clear, because I've read accounts last night that something like between five and 8,000 would close the border. So the minimum might be five, the maximum might be eight. That's insanity, utter insanity. And in general terms, there would be some kind of immediate work permit for illegals coming across the border. There would also be guest worker permits for them coming across the border. Parole power for uh, various asylum seekers uh, up in the air. I mean, I think they'd give everybody parole. So they come into the interior of the country. There would be tax-funded lawyers to represent the illegals insofar as they're asylum-seeking. And it goes on from there. Something that's completely unacceptable. The numbers in for December, as you probably saw, it was a Friday night dump, of course, so they were hoping, the Bides were hoping nobody would see it. But it was uh, 302,000 in the month of December alone. 302,000 in December alone. All right, so just consider that. This is uh, from the uh, Border Patrol. This is the highest ever. And um, in December alone, there were 19 illegals from the FBI terror watch list. And for the fiscal year so far, that would be October, November, and December of last year. That's called fiscal 2024, there are 50 illegals that were caught or crossed or encountered. See, I don't know what these definitions really mean. I think they were encountered, but they're in the interior. 50 from the FBI terror watch list. And I just want to say that my sense is, without being an expert, my sense is that you have to watch the northern border just as carefully. And that's one reason why immigration was the number one issue in New Hampshire. Number one issue. And then, of course, you have the drama of the Texas border. Governor Abbott, I know him well, he's a good man. He's fighting the good fight to keep the barbed wire or the razor wire up to try to prevent illegals. The Biden administration took it in the court. Uh, to break down the wire, cut the wire. The Supreme Court issued some kind of preliminary tentative agree, uh, decision. It wasn't a complete decision. It was a tentative, uh, preliminary decision, a pause that said you can't put the wire up. But in fact, what we've learned is the Border Patrol agents are working with the Texas National Guard and the wire is being kept up. And then, of course, 
25 of the 26 Republican governors have aligned themselves with Jim Abbott in Texas in favor of using the state National Guard to close the border. Some, uh, like um, Christy Noem and others, have said they'll send National Guardsmen or National Guards people down there to help. So you've got that threat at the southern border. Nothing but chaos. That's all it is, just chaos. No laws. And Abbott is right. If the federal government refuses to maintain its constitutional authority, protect the country, its national security, its own sovereignty, then the states have to step in. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just trying to parse through this in a common sense way. Of course the state's going to step in. Texas on the firing line. There'll be more of this. Believe me, there's going to be more of this because um, the Biden administration will not take matters into hand and solve the problem. And let me say, on the issue of solving the problem, Joe Biden doesn't need a congressional deal to solve the problem. He has the same executive authority that Donald Trump had when he was president. That authority, of course, includes things like putting up barbed wire. That includes another round of Title 42, which was health security, which is part of national security, which would have prevented illegals from crossing the border or would have been a catch-and-deport policy. Of course, remain in Mexico could have been negotiated, but they didn't with Mexico. You recall, I recall, because I was serving in the Trump administration, at the time Mr. Trump told Mexico, AMLO, President Abrador, President Nieto before him, if you won't... uh, help us with the remain in Mexico while the asylum decisions are being made. If you won't keep them in Mexico, then we will double or triple your tariffs and you will not be able to export any automobiles or other manufacturers or virtually anything. We will shut down your economy, in other words. And so Mexico folded and agreed. They put 20, what, 26, 28,000 troops on the border to help the United States keep the migrants in Mexico, while they wait for some kind of decision with respect to asylum or work permits or jobs or whatever, but it would uh, prevent them from coming into the United States. That could be done by executive order, and it would be wildly popular. And Biden will not do it because he doesn't want to do it because he wants an open border, no matter what he says. Even though the polls show it will sink him, in the presidential election. Of course, Mr. Trump also built about 500 miles plus of a wall, and we've lost enormous amounts of money because equipment has been rusting on the sidelines, not used by the Bidens because they called it off. So you probably would need an additional congressional appropriation of funds 
to pursue that, but there's no reason that couldn't be pursued. And in general, the policy would be catch and deport rather than catch and release. This is not hard. These are executive authorities that Biden has, that Trump used, or negotiating authorities. So Tony Blink, uh, Bl- uh, uh, Blanken, whatever his name is, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, goes down to Mexico with Dingbat Mayorkas, who is uh, going to face impeachment hearings. Complete Dingbat. Never told any truth whatsoever on this. Neither did Biden. Anyway, they went to Mexico and came back with nothing a few weeks ago. They came back with nothing. Nothing. What is that all about? It is time for change. It is time to retire Biden. It is time to retire Biden and his whole administration. One after another. And here we are again with illegal immigration in the news. And frankly, appropriately, former President Trump on the warpath, on the campaign trail, This was a Trumpian issue and will continue to be a Trumpian issue. Bidens don't care about law and order or American sovereignty or the interests even of cities that are being run over by these illegals. Sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, At this point, there's only one person that could possibly stop this catastrophe, and his name is Trump. And it's going to be the key issue in this election. You wait and see. I'm Cabo. We'll take a break. Much more coming. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, a couple other things in the news. The um, Democratic... Sorry, my throat is stuck. All right, give it another shot. A New York court awards someone named E. Jean Carroll, whom Donald Trump has never met. $83 $83 million for some sex lawsuit. We'll talk about that with Mark Simone and Joe Concha that are coming up. It's the most ridiculous thing. The jury here was the um, New York State Democratic Party. <laughs> That's all it is. And then there's this other crazy lawsuit uh, from Letitia James and this nutty judge that want to take Trump's businesses away from him and fine him for no reason at all. There was no no victim, no fraud, no nothing. Another one for the Democratic National Committee. They're the jury. 
They're trying to stop Trump, and they can't. Trump, of course, swept in uh, Iowa, swept in uh, New Hampshire. He is uh, up by 30 points in South Carolina. Not according to real clear politics. I don't think any of these trials are going to ever come to fruition, including the two federal trials by the special counsel, Smith, whatever his name is, Jack Smith. Fannie Willis, down in Georgia, is another state trial. She's going to have more indictments than Trump will. I mean, her boyfriend and taking money to travel and paying him $650,000, not paying the other prosecutors anything close to that, and getting involved in a divorce hearing. Oh, my God. She'll have more indictments than Trump. That thing will never see the light of day. She's going to be lucky if she can keep her job by the time this is over. Just phony baloney attacks, weaponization of the justice system at the state level, at the federal level, to try to keep Trump, keep him off the ballot. Really? Actually, in Maine, this crazy Secretary of State in Maine has no judicial or legal standing. Anyway, her her own state Supreme Court just threw it out. Trump will be on the ballot in Maine, okay? And he's won virtually every other thing. The Colorado thing was put on hold until the Supreme Court I don't know, there's one other one out there I can't recall. It's Minnesota or one of them. But anyway, it doesn't matter because none of this is going to stop. Weaponizing against Trump will not stop him. Joe Biden's going to have to fight it out. On the economy. On immigration. On foreign policy. On parents in the schools. On law and order. On woke DEI culture, economy, border, foreign policy. Right now, Trump is the odds-on favorite to win. He's ahead in the polls. Nikki Haley notwithstanding. She's just hanging around until South Carolina. She wants to run, she'll run. I'm not going to say anything about that. She doesn't have anything to run on. Even the Wall Street Journal, which is violently anti-Trump, uh, Kim Strassel wrote a good piece saying, what exactly is her rationale? She doesn't have one. She never had one. I'm not saying she's a bad person. I'm not saying she isn't at least some kind of conservative, sort of conservative light, but she's not going anywhere. She's, ha- she's basically hanging around for a legal decision against Trump, but it's not going to happen. So we have all that. And yes, there was good news. We'll get to this uh, in the stock market and the economy with uh, Breitbart's John Carney. It was good news for Joe Biden on the economy. He got a good GDP report. I won't deny that. Of course, most of it was government spending and government borrowing that created the, stim- that created the stimulus. But we'll talk about all that as the show unfolds. I'll try to get my uh, voice back. I'm Kudlow. We'll have Simone and Concha talking politics right after this. Stay with us, folks. Lots more to do. I'll be gargling with some warm water and salt.
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk money and politics. No, we're just going to talk politics. We've got Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and Fox News contributor and author of the book, Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible Presidency. And we've got Hall of Fame radio broadcaster Mark Simone, 710-WOR, every day, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Say, Mark Simone, you're you're a friend of E. Jean Carroll's, aren't you? Maybe you can explain this story to us. $83 million defamation suit. Uh, I believe the jury was the New York State Democratic Committee, but I could be wrong about that. Help us out, would you please, because you've known her for years. I don't want. I've met her many times. I don't really know her, uh, although I feel like I know her. Just a wacky, wacky woman. The <laughs> fact that this judgment was so insane, outrageous, over the top, it'll drive Trump up five points in the polls. Uh, is, they don't get this. This is backfiring on them. This is all coordinated, I'm sure. Um, I, I don't believe her story for a second. She couldn't tell you when. She couldn't even tell you what year it was. And the reason for that is uh, it's known that Trump keeps meticulous records. So if she ever did give a date or a time, he could show his calendar and show he wasn't there. Uh, she posed for an article with the dress on. This is the dress that happened in. And then uh, it was from Donna Karen. Donna Karen's people came out and said, we didn't even make that dress until uh, recently. <laughs> and nobody's pointed this out. Every detail of her story is from a 2012 Law & Order episode. Oh, now, I don't know if that's a coincidence, but that would be one hell of a coincidence. So uh, I'm not buying this story. Hey, I, and I knew Trump during that period. He always traveled with bodyguards. And yeah, I, I knew a lot of people who worked in Bergdorf Goodman. Nobody ever saw him in there in the women's store. And he points out if he wanted to be with a woman right across the street at the time, he owned the Plaza Hotel. He had about a thousand <laughs> rooms in there. He owned three major apartment buildings within a block of there. <laughs> He wouldn't have had to use the dressing room in and you know him really well. Can you even picture that happening? No, I can't, actually. I think no. it's an incredible thing. <clears throat> Joe Concha, did Simone worm out of that, you think, and had that work for you? I didn't know Jackie Gleason was alive and well. I'm gonna, I, 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 I didn't even really know her at all. Uh, I think he, he got out successfully, yes. Look, there's an interview, guys, that E. Jean Carroll did with Anderson Cooper a few years ago. And Cooper is talking about these allegations, and she said just the most bizarre stuff you could possibly hear in an interview, to the point that Cooper couldn't get to commercial fast enough. I'll I'll read you the transcript, okay? The Mm. word rape carries so many sexual connotations. Most people view rape as violent assault, Cooper responds. She says, I think most people think of rape as being sexy. They think of the fantasies. Cooper then says, we, we got to get to commercial. Uh, stay right there. And she says, you're a very interesting person to talk to. And uh, to all of Mark's wow. points, there is zero evidence around this, just like it was with Kavanaugh when you're trying to prove something from 35 years ago, 30 years ago. It, it, it's something you can't prove. Uh, and, and the fact that she waited this long to come out with this and, and did that interview the way she did with Cooper, and then $83 million, uh, Mark is exactly right. People shake their head. I got a text from a friend yesterday who doesn't talk politics with me ever. We only talk sports. And he was at the gym, and he said, this is a bunch of horse you-know-what. 
He goes, what, what is going on here? And then I had to explain it to him. And he goes, I don't even think he's a fan of Trump. He goes, I may just vote for Trump now at this point. This is ridiculous. Hmm. And I have the text. That, that conversation really happened. Is it true, Joe, that the uh, jury was the Democratic um, State Committee? That's that's what's being reported. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is such a fixed fight, just like uh, the Alvin Bragg uh, trial that may come up yeah. will be a fixed fight. Fannie Willis thought she had a fixed fight. Now she might not be in the ring at this point. But people see all of this in aggregate. Right. And Jack Smith wants a speedy trial before the election. And it looks the way it does because it is the politicization and the weaponization of the justice system to eliminate the guy who is the odds on favorite to be president. You look at the real clear politics average. They have betting averages from all the sports books. And Trump is up 11 points on mm-hmm. Biden right now in terms of being the favorite to be president again. So what does Colorado and Maine do? They take him off the ballot. There's 33 other states that want to take him off the ballot. Whatever they can do to beat him, besides on the issues, Democrats will try. Mark Simone, uh, Fannie Willis is going to have more indictments than Trump. Well, uh, that's an easier case. That's an open and shut case. (laughs) The the Trump one, I still don't understand. Everything he's alleged to have said, done, same exact stuff done over and over and over again by Stacey Abrams in Georgia. I don't see Mm -hmm. anybody uh, going after her. Uh, Stacey. Stacey didn't have a boyfriend, though. Well... (laughs) I'm editing myself. I'm cutting out all the jokes here. But, oh. um. <laughs> Sorry. I know. This is a family show. It's a family yeah. show. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, Fannie Willis got a lot of explaining to do. And the, the most important thing on there is the boyfriend bills uh, everybody for visiting the White House twice for eight hours. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to be meeting with the White House. Eight-hour meeting sounds like extremely detailed planning. So either he, they did that, which would be an incredible story, or he's bilking the state with phony uh, billing. Uh, either way, somebody's in trouble here. Yeah, somebody's in trouble here. None of this stuff. There was an interview with one of Trump's campaign managers who said that none of, <clears throat> none of these trials will be tried before the election. Everything will be postponed on appeal before the election. And the reason I was interested in that, because, of course, that is the obvious strategy by Team Trump, um, and this stuff should be appealed. No, it should all be appealed to the Supreme Court if they can get there. Um, I think that um, Nikki Haley, the only reason she's in the race, staying in the race, and this was a column I read this morning uh, from the messenger, Joe Conscious, so I'll take it to you. Doug, Dougie Schoen, you know Doug. Very well. Uh, he's a terrific guy. He's a Democratic pollster, but he's a first-rate pollster, and he's a good man. I mean, his thought was that, that Nikki Haley is waiting around for some legal bombshell that would take Trump out. That's what her strategy is. Other than that, there's no reason for her to stay in the race. What you think? Well, she can stick around, I guess, and in the non-winner-take-all states, get a couple of delegates here and there, and then if Trump were forced to drop out, and again, I don't see how that could possibly happen, because to your Mm -hmm. point, none of these trials are happening before Election Day, but let's say that does happen for some reason, then she is the only one who could say, see, I have delegates. I stuck around for a reason. Vote for me. But I think a lot of Trump supporters would not be happy about that at all. And you'd be looking at the the second term of Joe Biden under that incredible scenario, which I I don't think will happen. Joe Biden might not make it either, just physically, but I don't know that. Mark, uh, what do you think about that story, Doug Schoen's hypothesis? 
Uh, well, she has a good reason to stick around. She has uh, been collecting donor money like crazy, almost a million dollars a day in fundraisers. If she keeps at it, right up until South Carolina, she could raise $25 million. Mm-hmm. You can, you can keep, you then drop out and keep that money and spend it for years. You can't spend it on yourself. But as uh, a lot of politicians do, it can pay for an office, a secretary, a car, a driver, under the pretense that you're going to be running again sometime. But can you buy a dress? I think that's can, what she's can up you, to. Can you buy a dress in Bergdorf's? <laughs> Just don't uh-huh. go in the dressing room. But <laughs> well, you, I mean, you know, you could. You need it for TV appearances, I suppose. Uh, maybe hair and makeup at Fox News. I don't know. I'm just saying, she's going to raise $25 million? Really? Uh, she's got like 20, 30 fundraisers lined up. And uh, you, you know these things where some billionaire holds it. They can raise almost a million dollars in an event. She mm-hmm. raised $2 million this week alone. Yeah, Sean said I think her his number was $2.5 million or some such thing. Two, two six. Point, I'm looking at it, guys, yeah. Yeah, $2.6 million. Um, I don't know if she'll make it to South Carolina. I, I guess she will. You know, there was a story, it's worth a serious story. Kim Strassel, uh, who's a great editorialist and a dear friend. Uh, unfortunately, the, all my dear friends at the Wall Street Journal editorial page uh, have, you know, Trump haters, never Trumpers and so forth. But uh, both the editorial page and Kim Strassel this week wrote pieces that um, one trouble with Nikki Haley is she has no rationale for running that she effectively has said nothing on the key issues. And um, inferentially, uh, Donald Trump uh, has said a lot on all the key issues uh, as candidate, as president, and now as candidate again. He knows the issues very well. Nobody knows really why Nikki Haley's running on taxes, on the border, uh, foreign policy maybe. She's the bad hawkish on Ukraine, which is increasingly unpopular. But Joe Concha, I mean, it is an interesting uh, question. Why is Nikki Haley running? You're supposed to have, you know, a significant predicate when you launch a presidential campaign. I don't see one from her. Her premise and her whole theme seems to be those guys are old and I'm younger, therefore vote for me. Mm. Or Donald Trump brings chaos everywhere he goes. There's no chaos with me. What I know, don't hear about from her almost never is the U.S. southern border and what's happening there, where you have 9.5 million people have come into this country since Joe Biden took office. That is more than 39 U.S. states and their total population. So think mm. about that for a moment. And, and obviously the national security implications of hundreds of terrorists coming over, according to the FBI, that are on the terror watch list. I would think she would be talking about the issues more, but she's more like a Liz Cheney, where she talks about Trump and how horrible Trump is. Uh, but I don't hear a lot about what will she do to make the lives of Americans better when it comes to inflation, energy, trade, the border, education, foreign policy. It seems to be more focused on personalities in terms of her and her attacks than what are you going to do to fix this country, Larry? Yeah, Mark. I, I think that's right. You know. Um, Mark, she was on Fox and Friends, um, I guess it was Friday, maybe it was Thursday, and she said Trump has no plan to close the border, which is <laughs> remarkable, because he's basically, you know, uh, 2015, 2016, four years in office, and now a couple years out of office and running. That's probably his very strongest, most detailed issue uh, solution, and she says he has no plan to close the border. That's the kind of you know nitpicking and ankle biting that Joe Concha is talking about. Well, she's just basically recreating Chris Christie. She's doing his act, just outrageous oh. insults, 
Mm. Just not throwing nonsense at them. And this is what the donors are buying. This is what they're paying her to do. They want this. And, uh, you know, one thing about these donors, we always talk about how they're always wrong about everything. Mm. They've made billions with hedge funds. If you came to them with an investment, they would do due diligence for a month on this. You come to them with a candidate, as long as they look good and sound good at the dinner party, they can't get the checkbook out fast enough. Mm. These donors aren't even aware that she hasn't got any positions. (laughs) She's she's got a terrible track record. She's lost everything, and they're still writing checks to her. Now, some of them, I think, are doing that to just be on the right side socially, that uh, I did everything I could to stop Trump. I backed Nikki Haley. So she's got that momentum going. Well, Kellyanne Conway said, I mean, over a year ago when the donors loved DeSantis, she said donors are always wrong. She said yeah. the problem with donors is they give money first and then talk to the candidate second. You're supposed to talk to the candidate first and then give money second if you like what you hear. And I think that's I think that's uh, exactly right. Um, it could be, though, Mark, that Jamie Dimon, and this is interesting, Jamie Dimon at Davos uh, basically said it's, it's all right to be for Trump. He said, remember, said Trump was kind of right on the economy. He was kind of right on uh, on uh, the border. He was kind of right on the Abraham Accords and kind of right on Iran. <laughs> Basically, James said he was right. OK, and the people in Davos imploded. I mean, they all fell on their swords. There was, you know, pictures of them shooting themselves and committing suicide. Uh, he may have turned that around for Trump. I mean, it's very interesting. Yeah, well, he's always been the smartest of the bunch. He's kind of a leader in many ways of that pack. So maybe he's being Paul Revere here and just uh, warning everybody. You, yeah, you better get on board. One thing about these donors, when they figure out that they're wrong and uh, they're left out, they jump back on the bandwagon. Not yeah, sincerely, but they do it. Oh, that's right. Jamie also warned Wall Street. You know, do not underestimate. I mean, I don't know whether he's Democrat or Republican. I have no idea. Oh, I know. Go ahead, if you know. <laughs> he, uh, yes, uh, he said at Davos also, he says, I'm a, a Democrat, Democrat at heart, but I'm a Republican in the head. Yeah. In other words, emotionally, yeah. I can I can understand their positions, but when I'm thinking pragmatically, I'm a Republican. And he also said, Larry, I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA. Uh, and he warned that it's going to have it's going to backfire when you speak down to these people. Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton would know, basket of deplorables, right? And now Joe Biden does the same thing. This is not the way you win elections when you try to demonize 74 million people. Yeah, no, that's right. He used to come visit me in the White House a lot. Uh, I appreciate that. I, I knew him around town in New York. Uh, we'd go to the same restaurants. Um, he puts his finger to the wind, but that's okay. He's, he is the best banker in the country. He runs the best bank in the country, probably the best bank in the world. So he does carry a good deal of weight. Um, we'll have to take a quick break here. We're having so much fun with all these trials and so forth and Mark Simone's relationship with E. Jean Carroll. Uh, we have Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger, Fox News contributor, author of the book, Come On Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good Presidency, and uh, Hall of Fame radio broadcaster, my friend Mark Simone, uh, 710 WOR, every day, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. We're talking politics with Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and Fox News contributor. 
and author of the book, Come On Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good Horrible Presidency, and Mark Simone, Hall of Fame radio host, 710 WOR, weekdays, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Let's talk about the border. There's insane, no one knows exactly what deal was reached in the Senate. Uh, Jim Langford, James Langford of Oklahoma, and Chris Murphy of um, Connecticut, and there's somebody else, oh, um, from Arizona, what's her name? Uh, uh, so-called independent from Arizona, whatever her name is. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's right, thank you. So what we're hearing is, I mean, this is so crazy, uh, they, Biden, Biden will let in 5,000 illegals a day, and now there's something about between five and 8,000 uh, no one knows about that because at 8,000, he said he'd close the border. That's the deal. So we'll have 8,000 illegals a day. Uh, immediate work permits, guest worker permits, tax-funded lawyers, new parole powers, etc., etc. Does that sound like a good deal, Joe Concha? <laughs> Here, here's how it works, okay? Because we saw them do this with inflation. If we have 10,000 people coming over the border every day, like we saw in December... And then they cut it down to, say, 5,000. Joe Biden could then run campaign ads without the media fact-checking this in any way, shape, or form, saying, see, we reduced border crossings by half, thanks to my leadership. <laughs> now, wait a minute. 5,000 is still, you know, thousands more than it was under Trump. And they did it with inflation. Yeah. When, when inflation went to 9-point-something percent and they brought it down to 5, they're like, see, we're bringing down inflation and saving the American people $500 a month. No! Inflation was 1.3% when you took office. 9 isn't the number. one point three is, just like 10,000 isn't the number, it's the number that Trump had in 2019, where, by the way, we had zero people on the FBI terror watch list that crossed over into this country during that year. That should be the concern. This is a bad deal, and this is why Trump wants it killed. Not to claim credit, because it doesn't do anything. Yeah, by the way, the just in December alone, with 302,000 illegals crossing in, uh, 19 were on the FBI terror watch list, and for the first quarter of the year, fiscal uh, year, uh, October, November, December, 50 uh, illegals crossed yes. over. They were on the FBI terror watch list. So Mark Simone, um, caught, of course, pardon? Those I don't know that caught. they were caught. The good terrorists don't get out. Oh, those are the ones right? that got. Yeah. And incidentally, they come in over the northern border, too. That's why it was the biggest issue in New Hampshire. So Mark Simone, the New York Times, is blaming Trump uh, for stopping this terrific deal. And the Biden White House is blaming the House for stopping this terrific deal. Is this a terrific deal, Mark Simone? Is this something that the country will applaud? 5,000? The whole deal is phony. You know, this is the problem with corrupt media. You know, Democrats can pull anything, say anything, claim anything, and the media will back it up. Most people don't know. It's basically a bill to fund Ukraine with something about the border thrown in there. And you see the uh, White mm. House saying, if only we got this money, we could hire more Border Patrol. Uh, that's a complete con job. You know, we love the Border Patrol, great men and women, but they're not being used to stop anything. The Biden administration has been using them to process people in. So they'd love another 5,000 agents to process even more people in. Things that actually work, like that razor wire fence that Texas put up, they're, they're tearing down. And the court ordered them to stop, and they're still tearing it down. I, I mean, it, it, it's a complete fake thing here. 
It's like a civil war on the border of Texas. Anyway, gentlemen, we've run out of time. Thank you for helping out, Joe Concha and Mark Simone. You're both fabulous. We'll talk next week. No, we'll talk. We'll talk on the TV show this coming week. All right, folks, we're going to take a break, and then John Carney of Breitbart is going to tell us about Biden's strong economy. He did get 3.3% GDP in the fourth quarter. We'll uh, go through all of this. Is the Fed going to cut interest rates? Is the stock market going to continue to rally? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Oh, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can join us on radio by streaming across the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. It'll run everywhere around the country throughout the globe and the solar system, including the Milky Way. Incidentally, uh, during the week on television, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't get there at 4 Just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show, where you will see the great John Carney, Breitbart News Editor of Economics and Finance and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, a must-read. So, John, I'm reading you why the Fed lost control of the economy last year. Uh, It was a stronger year than anybody thought, uh, including myself. Um, 3.1%, I give the Bidens their due. They're jumping on tables. I mean, if you had a 30% approval rating in the polls, you'd be thrilled, too, if you had 3% growth for a couple of quarters. I will say a lot of this was government spending and borrowing and debt finance, but whatever. Why did the Fed lose control of the economy? Everybody thought there was going to be a recession. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a year ago. The Fed was projecting 0.5% growth for the full year. So we had more than six times as much growth as the Fed thought it would have, <laughs> we would have, which yeah. is kind of mind-blowing. Um, what, what really happened, and by the way, it wasn't because the Fed didn't raise interest rates as much as they thought they were going to. They raised them more. Than they mm. thought they were going to. When you look at the projection, they thought they'd end the year at like 5.1% Fed funds rate, and we're at you know, and 5.4. Uh, so this is a this was a you know mind blowing year. What really seemed to have happened is that the higher interest rates did not restrict business activity. It didn't weigh on hiring very much, and businesses kept growing. Kept uh, economic activity kept on at a much higher level than people thought was possible with these higher interest rates. So that tells me that the economy actually can withstand a higher level of interest rates, that we may actually be in an environment that requires higher level of interest rates than a lot of people think. You know, I was just wondering, uh, characteristic of uh, a Fed tightening, with a recession impact on the economy, John, is that a, a, some kind of financial blow-up, you know, yeah. savings and loans or mortgage-backed securities. Now, we had a sort of mini blow-up last March, right, with Silicon Valley Bank and Republic National. But the Fed came in and did a quick bailout. I call it a mini bailout. It was about $140 billion. But, John, you know, nowadays uh, these banks – get interest 
on the reserves parked at the Federal Reserve. I wonder, you know, and that's paying over 5%, and I wonder whether that doesn't cushion the entire banking system from the kind of crises and blow-ups that we've seen in the past leading to recessions. I think that's right. When the Fed raises interest rates, they, the banks lose money in a mark-to-market basis on their bond holdings, and they get in trouble if they have to sell any of those right away. But they're earning a lot of income just from their reserves parked at the Fed. When the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, the banks have to pay more to borrow, but they are also getting paid that money on their reserves. And that, I do think, cushions a lot of the blow. I do think that the blow-up and bailout that we had back last spring probably is another factor of why growth was so strong. Remember the third quarter, which was you know followed that big blow-up and then the bailout, was so strong, 4.9% growth. I think some of that had to do with the fact that banks said, okay, right, we don't have to, you know, close our lending doors, even though there may be some trouble with our uh, asset base, because we know the Fed's there for us. And the banks, not just those troubled banks, remember the, the Fed opened up a huge facility where you could go and borrow, and banks did, much cheaper than, than they could under the Fed funds rate. Yeah, that's right. No, they were borrowing cheap and then putting the money in as bank reserves and getting a higher interest rate on it. So that's one thing. Uh, it's a resilient economy. I mean, maybe it's an AI economy. Maybe it's a information technology slash AI slash productivity economy. That's what Kevin Hassett was saying on the TV show Thursday. I think there's a lot to that. I think we've had a a lot of pro-productivity innovations and people can, you know, work later because they're working from home. Mm. Uh, that adds to, you know, the ability of the economy to produce. Frankly, the unemployment rate has been so low that it has encouraged consumers to be able to keep spending. So, yes, as you said, there is a large role. We, we ran a very large deficit. Uh, our friend Joe Lavornia has often pointed out how much excess spending the government has done over the last few years that's helping fuel it but but it wouldn't be this strong without frankly consumers being willing to spend money and the key to that has been keeping the unemployment rate very low and the fed didn't think that was going to happen by the way if you look at the fed's projections from a year ago they thought the unemployment rate was going up to 4.5 percent instead we've never really gone we've never gone above four percent what does this mean for the outlook for their Fed funds rate? I think that they that they are over. They they think they can bring it down faster than they can. Uh, if we are growing three point three percent, you this far into the Fed hiking cycle, then those you know everybody talks about lagged effects from monetary policy. Those lagged effects should have been kicking in already. That's why people thought we were going to have a recession. It's why people were projecting that we were going to grow 1.5 to 2% in the fourth quarter. So what we're seeing is that the economy can can withstand a higher interest rate, which means that if you start to cut the interest rate, you risk reigniting inflation. And I think they're going to discover that pretty quickly and have to back off of – certainly they're not going to do what the market says, which is six or seven cuts. They're going to, they may have to back off of their own projection, which is three cuts. Yeah, whatever their projections are, you should probably expect the opposite. I mean, that's the way it's worked out in recent years. Absolutely. 
You know, inside those numbers, the 3% number for GDP growth, you've got very strong consumer spending, but you have very weak business investment spending. I mean, it's almost like it's too much demand, you know, too many, uh, too much money chasing too few goods. Uh, investment in machinery and equipment has been basically flat over the last year. Um, that's not a good sign. I mean, that go- now you've had technology advances, so the information technology area, intellectual property has gone up, so that's good. Um, housing's kind of meandering, maybe slightly off the bottom. But business investment is not doing well, John, and that makes me think too much demand for goods could be raising prices soon. I think that's right. One of the, I mean, remember that businesses were told, like, we were going to have a recession, right? The Fed's own projection said we're probably going to have a recession. I think that made them hesitant to invest. It'll make them hesitant to invest going mm-hmm. forward. But on the other hand, I do think that one of the things we saw was that they didn't pull back as much as the Fed thought. So, yes, mm-hmm. business investment has been weakish, but nowhere near as weak as you would have thought with the, with, as much interest rate increases as we had. And I think the reason for that is the Fed all along has been telling everybody, yes, they're high now, but we're coming back down to 2.5% eventually on the Fed funds rate. That that number used to shift around a lot. It has been basically flat since before the pandemic at 2.5%. They didn't shift the the median projection at all during Mm. the inflationary period. So what businesses were able to do was say, look, okay, maybe it'll cost us a little bit more to borrow right now, but we'll be able to refinance that later at 2.5%, so it's not mm. a problem. We'll keep going. And I think that's one of the reasons the Fed was wrong about right. what would happen to the economy last year. All right, John Carney, Breitbart, terrific stuff, John. We appreciate it. We'll see you on the TV show this coming week. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and talk to Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota Uh, No more LNG facilities. No increases in liquid natural gas by the Bidens. This is the crazy Green New Deal, and they are making a terrible mistake. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Here's here's a little nuanced change in language. you know, they used to say everything was about greenhouse gas emissions and reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, climate change emissions, all those things. But you might notice in this most recent, this most recent sort of you know, uh, wall, uh, if you will, on, on LNG export terminals, they're saying in, the, in his commitment, his being the president's commitment to reduce fossil fuel production. So, so suddenly, and, and the reason I had to say that, Larry, is because... Eliminating LNG exports increases greenhouse gas emissions because it turns clean gas opportunities over to dirty, polluting gas countries. Let me give you an example. I think it was 2018. I was I was a congressman at the time running for the Senate when Engie, which is a large utility in France, used to be owned by the French government, and the French government still owns a minority share of Engie. Engie had had signed a long-term large contract for U.S. LNG for generating electricity, hmm. but then were persuaded to to cancel that contract and replace it with gas from guess where Algeria and Russia. Mm-hmm. Now, our Department of Energy at the time had data that demonstrated that 
liquid natural gas in the United States versus gas from Russia. Natural gas in Russia put in a pipeline and sent to Europe is 40% dirtier, 40% greater greenhouse gas emissions than LNG from the United States of America. Mm. Whatever happened to concern for climate change and, and greenhouse gas emissions? The hypocrisy on top of just the, the silliness of it all is more than slightly frustrating to me. This is just, <clears throat> I think, political showmanship. I think they're looking to cater to uh, youngsters' votes. Isn't, Kevin, uh, isn't um, natural, the LNG and natural gas in general, uh, I saw 40% less carbon than coal and even 30% less carbon than oil, which goes to your point. Of course. <laughs> uh, this is not based on analysis. And, you know, the other thing is Rick Perry always says this to me. Um, mm mm-hmm. If we, imp- if we exported more LNG, let's say, to China, China coal burning, India coal burning, that would do far more to reduce carbon uh, emissions and so forth in the air than anything else. I mean, LNG is part of the solution, not the problem. Well, LNG is part of the solution, but LNG from the United States is an even bigger part of the is a big, even a bigger solution because of how well we do it. And by the way, this is to to the point of we do everything cleaner than the rest of the world, which is why why greenhouse gas emissions in the United States have reduced in the last 15 years more than the next eight reducing countries mm. added up. Mm. And and so but remember, remember, remember during the campaign, the 2016 campaign, and I was doing some some surrogate work for for candidate Trump and uh, debated Hillary Clinton's climate czar twice at two two pretty big events, and one was pretty well published. Published, and and I remember that Hillary Clinton said, "Natural gas is a bridge fuel." Remember, they used to always say that natural gas is a bridge fuel, but we need to make sure. It's a very short bridge. Now, mm. can you imagine mm. trying to inspire and incentivize large investment? And as you know, this is very large capital investment stuff with a statement like that. And so to your point about you know, this, this posturing, if you will, this political pandering, they don't even have to do what they say they're going to do to have a negative impact on the LNG industry because, again, who's going to invest in mm. these large LNG export terminals if – you have this uncertainty that swirls around a goofy president and an administration that responds to TikTok for crying out loud. Yeah, that's the worst. Senator Kramer, I mean, doesn't this play into Russia's hands and even into Iran's hands? And then there's that. <laughs> and then there's that. <laughs> right. So, you know, I right. was I was in Kiev about, about less than a month before the, the war started. And at that time, we had not yet green-lighted the, uh, remember, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Mm-hmm. and But the president w- wanted to do that. And everybody in Kiev, from Zelensky to the to the uh, energy minister and a whole bunch of members of parliament and others, said, please don't do that. Please don't do that. You're going to weaponize natural gas. He's already got the, you know th- this leverage on us. Don't weaponize natural gas. Well, the president disagreed. He and I had a pretty robust 20-minute discussion about it, he disagreed and he green-lighted the uh, Nord Stream 2. Mm. All the time he should have been green-lighting more LNG terminals in the United States because Europe is begging for our natural gas. The geopolitical advantage of having LNG and a robust LNG export terminals and a lot of flagship U.S. flagship uh, tankers and whatnot, as well as others, 
Uh, and it, because remember, our our friends who want the LNG, they are building the infrastructure to receive it. Mm-hmm. Well, if they can't rely on us, you know, and they're, more and more we're becoming a, a less reliable ally to our friends in Europe and other places. If they can't rely on us, um, what are they going to do? But they're going to be forced. You're exactly right. Back into the arms of Vladimir Putin and uh, and other bad actors. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable, Senator Kramer. In the last minute or so, uh, do you know anything about this alleged? Uh, border deal in the Senate, uh, 5,000 to 8,000 can come back in, you know, they can come over the line, no problem, uh, green cards, work permits, and all this stuff. It just sounds crazy to me. Do you know anything about this? Oh, I know, I know a fair bit about it, but, but the critics don't know nearly as much about it as they say because, of course, there's no, there's no text yet. But mm. here's what I do know with regard to, say, to the 5,000 to 8,000 number. What that is, the 5,000 is if you get to 5,000 a day, the, the, um, you know, coming across, which doesn't just include illegals, it includes the illegals plus the, 1,600 or so that, that come through with the, with the uh, DHS app. Mm. If you get to that number, the border automatically, in other words, the president doesn't have discretion, the DHS secretary doesn't have discretion, it automatically, mandatorily shuts down, and it shuts down for several days a- until those numbers are reduced. So, so it's not, right now, it's unlimited, right? There, mm. There's nothing that shuts them down except the will of the president. So this would, this would improve on that, plus building uh, capacity to turn people around at the border at 5,000 per day. Now, we'll have to see the final text, but it's a little bit, you know, being overly critical of it is a little bit like telling Ed McMahon, no, I want $2 million. You take this $1 million check and go home. You know, we've, we've got to be realistic about where we are. Again, let's wait and see the text of it, um, but, that, but that's what I know for now. All right. Senator Kevin Kramer, North Dakota. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank Folks, you, quick, you betcha. Quick break, and um, Legal Beagle Greg Jarrett going to tell us about all these weaponized cases against Donald Trump. I can't believe it. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Help, help. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Plenty to talk about on the legal weaponization of our justice system against Donald Trump. You can just count them up. I guess four major lawsuits or indictments. Anyway, our favorite legal beagle, Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst and New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is called The Constitution of the United States and other patriotic documents. Welcome back, Greg Jarrett. Um, e. Jean Carroll, 83 million bucks. How about that one? 83 million. Maybe we should pony up and get a syndicate to help Mr. Trump finance it. Oh, wait a minute. He's going to appeal. Or no, you tell me. Yeah, he, he will appeal, Larry. And generally what happens with exorbitant uh jury awards like this is they eventually get knocked down uh, but he's also going to appeal on the merits you know what i find so troubling is that you know when somebody's accused of wrongdoing and they publicly proclaim their innocence and say you know i didn't do this i don't know this woman uh, i never had a relationship with her uh this is all made up 
mean, that's a free speech right, and particularly important when you're defending yourself from what you regard to be uh, false accusations, and somehow that is defamation. I think that may trouble the higher courts. She didn't even have the same... The dress she was wearing, supposedly, wasn't even invented yet by Donna Karan. Yes, and there was a witness called by the defense uh, towards the end of the case this week who uh, knocked down her damages claim by saying uh, she was loving the attention. She wasn't hurt by it. Uh, Yet the jury uh, paid no attention to that, principally because it's a New York jury, and they famously hate Donald Trump. Well, I think the jury was really the national, the Democratic National Committee. <laughs> well, if if you look at the voter registration rolls in uh, in New York City, you're right. <laughs> I know. And you know the other one that's still going on. I was reading a letter uh, from the defense uh, to the judge. Is the Letitia James? I mean, they they, they want to take away his businesses. They want to fine him. Uh, there was no fraud. There was no victim. The bankers were in favor of Trump. I mean, if there's no evidence, there's no nothing, except, again, this is the Democratic National Committee sitting as a jury. Yeah, it really is. To somehow uh, borrow a consumer protection statute and claim harm and damages when no consumer has been injured... Yeah. Um, it is to me a ridiculous mangling of the law. And again, I don't think it'll withstand judicial scrutiny. And let's go south to Hotlanta, Georgia, with Fannie Willis. She's in so much hot water, she's got more indictments coming up than Trump has. Yeah, there are now two investigations, one by the county commissioners looking into whether uh, she misappropriated public funds and benefited financially herself, as well as honest services fraud by hiring her lover and paying him $654,000 to bring a RICO case against Trump, when in fact this guy Nathan Wade knows nothing whatsoever about RICO. I tried a RICO case a great many years ago. I know more about it than he does. Mm. And what about finally you got the Jack Smith stuff? Um, the so-called classified documents and uh, what there's a, a fraud fraud indictment for January 6th. What's happening? You haven't heard much on that. Yeah, these cases seem to have stalled, if not crumbled. Um, you've got a problem in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, and I pointed this out the day of the indictment when I said, wait a minute, this case pivots on classified, highly classified documents, according to the special counsel. Um, How in the world can you convene a jury that uh, can clear uh, classified uh, status? You you can't. And they have to be able to see those documents. You just can't put an FBI agent on the witness stand uh, and based on hearsay say, Oh, yeah, trust me, these are classified documents. Uh, These jurors are not going to get security clearance, and the judges pointed this out, and that's why this case uh, is now subject to serious challenge. So, yeah, I mean, I never understood that case anyway. I mean, it's not like Trump sold documents uh, 
to foreigners or to our enemies. Right. I mean, there's there's no treason involved. Uh, no, and you're right, no one knows what those documents actually were. I mean, some people say he waved them around but didn't let anybody read. It's all hearsay. So I don't get that. And what about the January 6th thing? Yeah, that's now problematic uh, because two of the four uh, charges against Trump are under review by the U.S. Supreme Court in an unrelated separate J6 case. It's called obstruction of an official proceeding. Hmm. And I think the Supreme Court took the case because they've read the statute. Uh, that statute applies to the destruction of documents. Um, and that there's no allegation uh, hmm. against Trump that he uh, conspired to destroy documents. So I think two of the four charges uh, could be dismissed against him, and then you've got his broad immunity claim, which is up on appeal. So that case is not going to happen as scheduled. It's got serious problems. Is the documents thing, uh, Greg, is that is that the so-called Enron law? Yeah, it was the Sarbanes-Oxley right. uh, law, uh, mm. which took place uh, more than a decade, a couple of decades ago, and in which they wrote a provision that said, you know, if you alter documents to interfere in an investigation, that's obstruction of an official proceeding. The problem is, in Trump's case, there's no investi- there was no investigation at the time, on January 6th, there was no evidence to be destroyed. Hmm. So it, it has no application, and should Trump should never have been indicted on that. But it's classic Jack Smith, who contorts the law and twists the fact uh, to bring politically driven cases. Well, Greg Jarrett, that's a pretty breathtaking review of all these cases. Anybody who's listening to this... Uh and should know a lot more than when they started. Good for you. You want to give us, how about another patriotic document? I love to do that. Favorite patriotic document? Well, there are so many in them. Uh, in the, There are 64 of them in my yeah. book. And, you know, my regret was that I had to leave some famous documents, letters, addresses uh, out. Were I to do it over again, maybe there's a second volume here. Hmm. Um, Abigail Adams, uh, the wife of John Adams, was utterly brilliant, who had no formal education. And she was the conscience uh, of John Adams and, and in many ways, uh, the, you know, Continental Congress. And, Hmm. you know, but for her knowledge and wisdom and persuasion, uh, I, I often wonder if things might have turned out differently. She deserves uh, recognition for that. I wish it, uh, I'd been able to put Abigail Adams and her many brilliant letters in the book. Was there one especially important point that she made? She was virulently against uh, slavery. And mm-hmm. she was an outspoken, you know, mm-hmm. abolitionist. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, John Adams was, too. And it, I think she influenced him in that regard. And had she had uh, greater ability um, to, you know, persuade others, uh, you know, the course of American history would have been dramatically different. 
Wow. Yeah, I love that. Terrific stuff. Greg Jarrett, folks, Fox News legal analyst. The title of his latest book, The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it very much. Folks, we'll take a quick break. On the other side of the break, former Energy Secretary Briette, Dan Briette, will come talk some more about this natural gas fiasco and oil and the price of oil and the price of gasoline. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. More on LNG boycott by the Biden administration. And also, folks, I notice in the open market, oil prices are starting to rise again. Brent Brent crude up $83 a barrel, and uh, West Texas 78 So that's pretty interesting. We're going to bring in uh, the great Dan Briette, who's a former energy secretary, now president and CEO of the Edison Electric Institute. Dan, welcome back. I just, you know what? I did hit just, I happened to just hit the button on the commodity page, and Brent is up to 83, 83.66. That's up, I don't know, four or five bucks in the, I don't know, last 24, 48 hours. West Texas now up to 78. Uh, what do you think's going on there? I don't know, Larry. I guess you, you know we're seeing some increased demand for for those types of products in the marketplace. I'm not quite sure I uh, understand what's driven or what's driving this last increase. But I'll take a quick look. How are you this morning? I'm good. I'm it's all good. You know, I just wonder. Uh, everybody's bombing everybody else in the Middle East, and it seems to have had no impact on energy prices, at least up to now. I mean, Iran's bombing Pakistan, Pakistan's bombing Iran, Iran's bombing Iraq, U.S. is bombing the Houthis, and, of course, the horrible uh, Israel-Hamas uh, war and so forth. It's just amazing to me. I mean, that's the Middle East, that's OPEC, that's Saudi Arabia, but there hadn't been any impact on these prices. Well, just fascinating. I, I'm not well, sure I, I, I think. Well, Larry, I, I think part of that is because the United States is such a large producer today, and we, we weren't back in the in the seventies, as you recall. And uh, you know, we, maybe maybe now we're at a point where we're actually seeing the strength of the U.S. oil and gas industry uh, produce positive results in the marketplace and help stabilize things around the world. I mean, it's, it's an interesting point, Dan. I want to get to the LNG thing in a minute, but. Um we're producing, last I saw, 13.2 million barrels a day. Uh, mm-hmm. At the peak pre-pandemic, it was 13.1. But unfortunately, I mean, okay, so it's we're at a record high, but three years, four years later, shouldn't we be at 14 or 15 million barrels a day? We could be. I think there's some hurdles to doing that. Um, obviously, permitting is something that's very important here in the United States, as it, you know, as we talked about in the past. We've got to reform our permitting process to allow even more production. Importantly, Larry, not only just production, um, getting the product to market. We need more pipeline capacity here in the United States to actually get the product where it needs to be in the marketplace. We need to do those things quickly. Uh, you know, the other important element, I think, here, too, is, you know, you talked about pricing with the actual crude oil, but, you know, we're also looking at pricing and things like retail gasoline, you know, for mm-hmm. retail gasoline and diesel. 
And while our production numbers back up to pre-pandemic levels, we're still seeing on average, you know, roughly $3 a gallon for gasoline across the country. you got to ask yourself the question, you know, yes, it's good that we increased production, but have we made that production more expensive? And that's why consumers are not benefiting at the pump. It's an important question I think we need to ask ourselves. Well, we were down around $2 a gallon, weren't we? That's correct. You know, it was roughly $2, maybe a little, you know, $2 and a couple cents. But you got to ask, you know, at roughly the same production level, 13.1, I think is what you mentioned earlier, now we're at 13.2, give or take. Uh, but we're paying a dollar more at the retail pump. Hmm. The question is why. You know, have, have environmental regulations, have other costs, you know, uh, been put into the system that's not um, not uh, allowing that retail gas pump price to come down? Are we doing what we should be doing to develop electricity and electricity sources? I mean, you're with the Edison Electric uh, Institute now. Uh, how do you read that story? Because I think, I mean, I think the administration, Biden administration, has basically been completely unhelpful uh, virtually across the board uh, for electricity sources. Well, I, I think I, no. The short answer is no. I mean, the amount the amount of demand that's coming on uh, to the power companies across the United States is just amazing. You know, as we think about uh, the use of AI, uh, ChatGPT, the search engines that are now using AI, uh, all of those are incredibly intensive uh, for electricity use, and. You know, as we think about the other things that we're doing, I can tell you, you know, having run one of the, the nation's largest uh, LNG companies down in Houston, Texas, we were thinking about electrifying some of our industrial processes. Those are incredible loads on the utilities across the country. And if we're not allowed to develop infrastructure, if we're not allowed to develop generation sources, if we're not allowed to use things like natural gas to produce electrons any longer, it's going to be difficult for these companies to meet that demand. Yeah. So now the latest kick, I mean, we were talking to Senator Kevin Kramer, who knows a fair amount about it, come from North Dakota, but get your take. So the Bidens are halting uh, new permits for LNG facilities. This just seems like a major blunder to me. Uh, you know, Larry, I, I can't say that I fully appreciate the decision they've just made. Um, <laughs> I've, I've watched some of the uh, some of the commentary. I've tried to understand some of the rationale. Part of it is they claim that exports are raising prices for consumers here in the United States because that gas is no longer available in the domestic market. I don't think that's true. Uh, they suggest that they want to pause because of you know, some environmental review they'd like to uh, conduct. Uh, I think that is somewhat uh, specious as well. I mean, LNG, as you well know, to the extent it it displaces heavier hydrocarbons, has an enormously positive environmental impact. I mean, here in the United States, we've reduced power emissions by roughly 60% over a 15-year period Hmm. simply by switching to natural gas. That can be replicated all around the world. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, 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 like I say, I, I, I'm having a difficult time understanding the rationale unless you just don't want to see natural gas being used anywhere in the world. You know, your predecessor at Energy, Rick Perry, used mm-hmm. to always say to me, uh, great come on, he is a great American, he's a phenomenal American. You know, he, Rick would always say, uh, 
you want to cut global emissions, LNG exports are the key. And he would say, you know, if we have exporting LNG to China or India uh, or Vietnam, that is a lot less carbon than the coal burning that they're now engaged with. These are big coal-producing countries. We could turn them into LNG-consuming countries, and that would slash world emissions enormously. Mm -hmm. And yet here are the Bidens going in the opposite direction. I don't get this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, neither do I. I'll give you another stat. If you just eliminated or you just switched the top 5% of the dirtiest coal plants in the world today, most of them are going to be in places like China. If you just address those 5% and you switch those to natural gas, you would reduce global emissions from the energy sector, from the power sector, by 30%. Hmm. That's the same amount of emissions as all of India. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> if, if, you really, if you really want to have an impact, uh, you want to allow the switching to occur. And obviously the economic benefits of the U.S. industry would want them, you know, potentially to buy U.S. LNG. And our, um, that's, and why, that's why this is so important. And uh, Kramer, Kevin Kramer was saying that our LNG is a lot cleaner, let's say, than Russian LNG. No one does it better, Larry. No industry in the world does this better. We do it cleaner. We do it more efficiently. Uh, we, we produce the greenest molecules hmm. uh, in the world for natural gas. So. You know, our entire industry uh, is sensitive to the environment. Our entire industry is sensitive to climate. Our entire industry wants to do the right thing, not only by America, but the world. And, um, you know, I, I think we ought to unleash it. Uh, our good friend uh, Toby Rice in, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, hmm. CEO of EQT, says this better than anyone. It is, um, you know, LNG or you know, natural gas generally is the largest green initiative on the planet today. Mm. Unleash it's, it. It's a clean burning fuel. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the European Union has labeled it, it relabeled it as a clean burning fuel. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, it's true. I mean, it, it is. Uh, it is. I mean, you know, is it? Uh, it's not nuclear power. It's not zero carbon. But you know what? When it's out there in the marketplace, and we said earlier, is it? If it displaces coal, for instance, um, it has an enormously positive impact. But, I mean, it's important, too, that, you know, we've, we've set these goals for ourselves as an industry, as a company. It's important for people to understand that even if the United States were net zero today, you know, net hmm. zero uh, today, the world would still miss its climate goals. <laughs> wow. So we need to understand that. Dan Briette. Now President and CEO of the Edison Electric Institute, formerly U.S. Secretary of Energy. Good to hear your voice, Dan. Appreciate it very, very much. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We'll take a break. Stock market work on the other side. Please stay with us. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can, uh, by the way, on this radio, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. 
heard all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. That includes the Milky Way. During the week, Fox Business, name the show's Cudlow, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Please join us. If you can't make it at 4, you can text your favorite nine-year-old and she'll show you how to DVR the show. You could also catch the replay at 7 p.m. That might be easier. Anyway, we're going to talk stocks. The bull market continues. The Dow is up 246 points this week. The NASDAQ plus 144. The S&P 500 plus 51. Interest rates are wiggling around, but the 10-year is still well over 4%. And there's been a bump up in energy prices. We talked about it with Dan Briette in the last segment. Uh, for whatever reason, West Texas crude is now up to 78 bucks. Brent crude is up to 83 bucks, And gasoline is holding at $3.10. Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tengler Investments, and Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors and the Head of Investment Solutions. All right, ladies, night out. Stephanie Link. Tell me why the Cudlow Trust, which always is long, the index, is going to continue to prosper. Please tell me. Well, thanks for having me, and it's great to be on with Nancy, too. Um, I think it has everything to do with we're in the sweet spot of the economy. We just put up a 3.3% GDP number for the fourth quarter yesterday. Uh, we got those results. But more importantly, the Atlanta Fed GDP now tracker for the first quarter is running at 3%. So we're running above average in terms of growth. And a lot of that is because, you know, the stimulus uh, is continuing to help. We had a uh, fairly new stimulus last year, an additional $2 trillion that has yet to get into the economy. That's helping. The consumer is spending. I mean, any way you look at it, in the fourth quarter, GDP retail consumption was up 2.8%. December retail sales was up 4% year over year. Personal spending data we got yesterday up double expectations. And that has to do with what we've been talking about, Larry, for like two years, jobs, wages, and now you have lower inflation. We just got the best core PCE number since March of 2021 with a two-handle. So making progress. And why do we care? We care because this has everything to do with earnings. And I think that better economy gives you decent top-line uh, sales numbers. So like a 2% economy gives you like a 5% um, top-line number, 5 to 6 and lower inflation will help on the margin side, so you will get operating leverage uh, for a lot of the companies in the S&P 500, especially the companies that are not the MAG-7. I know that everyone's talking about this broadening out. We've, we've seen a, a stall out in the broadening out. The Magnificent 7, on average, are up about 6.5% uh, year to date. But I do think as we get through earnings, because the economy is doing better, you'll see a more a broader uh, distribution in terms of better earnings. And so that's why I think you want to stay long. No doubt you are right. Nancy Tangler, what happened to the recession? <laughs> <laughs> the waiting for Godot recession. Yes, yes. Um, I think a couple of things, Larry. You know, many of the companies, uh, that, that I think this is what fooled the Fed, and I heard your um, earlier interview with John Carney, and he's absolutely right. Uh, many companies, the large ones in particular, and in fact many of the MAG-7, but more broadly than that, they benefited from strong fortress balance sheets that were now collecting double the interest income than they were previously, and they didn't, they don't need to go to the market to fund CapEx 
um, or acquisitions for the most part. And so what you get is corporate leverage. And over time, historically, um, since 1980, corporate leverage or corporate earnings have outperformed the the, uh, nominal GDP by about 55%. So to Steph's point, and good to be on with you too, Steph, um, margins are going to expand. And, you know, we've got the added benefit of companies uh, buying back their shares, which will continue, and that should put a floor. We'll get volatility. Uh, I don't. I don't know where Steph is on this. I'd love to hear. I think we're going to get volatility in the first quarter, uh, and may continue into the you know into the first half in general. But I do think we're going to continue. We're going to be higher uh, by year end, and it just might be a little bumpy uh, on on our way there. Well, I'm just interested, uh, Stephanie. The Fed raised their target rate by 550 basis points. They slashed mm-hmm. the money supply from 20-something percent to minus-something percent. They're pulling back on their balance sheet high-powered reserves, and, it does, and the economy's gotten better. Okay? Mm-hmm. Go, I, all the models have broken down. Forecasting is, I mean, the Fed itself expected a recession or a near recession. And they're talking about cutting interest rates. The market was saying five or six, seven times, the Fed three times. What is going on here? I mean, it's it's an extraordinary situation. It, it, it really is. Okay, so just a couple of things. Um, you remember that in May of 2020, uh, when we closed the, uh, the country down, the Fed, if you add the Fed policies that were put in place and the monetary policies that were put in place, both had big bazookas. And they should, they needed to, you were part of it, the whole thing. So A plus for that situation because we, we needed to. But if you add up fiscal and monetary policies at that point in time, it was 60% of U.S. GDP. You remember back in, in 2008, the great financial crisis, which was a real crisis. We had banks that were going under left and right. And the fiscal and monetary policies put in place at that time was just 5%. So you put an enormous amount of liquidity in the system. You needed to do it. It worked. We had a V-shaped recovery. But you know just as well as I do that it takes a long time for stimulus to get into the system, into the economy. And so that led to a, a nice tailwind. And then, as I mentioned earlier, that we just had $2 trillion in additional infrastructure stimulus that was passed. That hasn't even gotten into the economy yet. And so that's a big part of it. The second part of it is that we've had, for the last six months, maybe not six months, maybe like four or five months, we've had financial conditions have started to ease. And so that's adding to real um, momentum in in the economy. Um, And then overall, you have consumer, that's 70% of the economy, that is humming at this point in time with $4.1 trillion in savings. And as I just mentioned, all those retail sales numbers, they're spending because they have jobs. There's still 1.2 jobs available for every one unemployed person, and that goes a long way. And with jobs, you have wages, and they feel pretty good. And then, oh, by the way, and then inflation is coming down. So, I mean, I hate to sound like this is everything is perfect because it's not. And I totally agree, Nancy, with you on volatility. We're at a 13 VIX. There's only like one direction I could go from here, I think. And I think it's gonna it's gonna surround what the Fed does, and and commentary even next week could could lead to a little bit more volatility. So the next recession will be 2029, which will be Kamala Harris's second term. <laughs> that was a joke. Joke, 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 joke. It's also important to note that there's a ton of cash on the sidelines and. 
You know, investors pulled $240 billion out of equities from October 2022 through the end of 2023, and yet the market was up 36% during that period. So I, I do think there's going to be a cushion there. Uh, also, when, pe- when, investor, when rates come down, uh, investors start putting cash back into the market. You don't need all of it to go back in. You just need some of it to go back in. And that will drive us up, I think, to the next level. Um, yeah, but, there's, but there's the, Nancy, you make a good you make a good point. There's six trillion in uh, in in money market in funds, and right. a trillion last year alone went into it. And you're right, if rates come down, people aren't going to be so happy with a four percent, maybe a three percent rate. I mean, now at five percent, it's really very tempting because you can you know call it a day. Five percent's not bad, but then when you have a market that's up twenty six percent, that opportunity cost is pretty significant. And we have another six trillion. Uh, as the New York courts penalize Donald Trump for various one thing or another. <laughs> so he'll have to put $6 trillion in. That'll help the overall market. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, but it is quite a story. I mean, you, all professional forecasters and the Fed was expecting minimally a slowdown. Most of them thought there'd be a recession. Uh, I was in the same camp. None of this has happened. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. It just kind of makes you wonder. That's all. I, I don't know what it makes you wonder about, but it just kind of makes you wonder. And um, everybody was wrong. Not everybody was wrong. I'm sure there were some people that were right. But the stock market still looks strong. So stocks would be predicting a continued decent economy, right? I mean, is that what the, this thing shows, Steph? Well, you're the one that coined the phrase, right, that uh... – Profits are the mother's milk yeah. for for the for the for equities and it, and and profits are going up right now, Larry. I yeah. mean, and we know, by the way, I mean, stocks follow profits on the way up and on the way down, and that's what happened in 2022. They followed on the way down. That's why we we're down 18 percent. Numbers came down, and it was just a horrible year. Last year was a nice mean reversion. We have all this these these great things that are happening. Economy's humming, and uh, and and but the market's not cheap, Larry. And so I think the big story this year is going mm. to be can we get away from mag 7 can we broaden because the overall s&p 500 is about 19.1 times forward estimates but if you look at the equal weight it's only at 16 times so there is a lot of value out there elsewhere beyond mm. the magnificent seven beyond technology but it re- represents 35 percent of the s&p 500 weighting and so it's big the question is, can we can we continue to, to grind higher if these other sectors participate? I think we can, but not 26% again. All right. Take a break. Nancy Tengler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tengler Investments. Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Investors and Head of Investment Solutions. The bull market continues. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are talking stocks with Nancy Tengler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tengler Investments, and Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors and the Head of Investment Solutions. Um, Ladies, curious to see what you think the Fed is going to do this year. Not that it matters. I mean, the Fed can raise them 500, cut them 500. The economy still barrels along. But, um, Stephanie, start with you. 
some people, a lot of people, the market still thinks the Fed's going to be cutting interest rates, even though we're growing over 3% with an unemployment rate of 3.7%. What do you make of the Fed? Well, I mean, they have a dual mandate. We know jobs and inflation, and jobs is certainly going in their direction, so they have the flexibility. Now inflation, though, looks pretty good. I mean, any way you slice and dice it, Larry, the numbers are improving. Uh, they're not to the level that the Fed wants to see it, but 2.9% core PCE, 2.6% headline number, these are great numbers, making a lot of progress. Um, and even Bullard uh, last week talked about, hey, maybe they don't need to get to – two percent to start to cut so um, i thought that was sort of interesting commentary from him um but i do think six is i mean i hate to say out of the question but i really don't think that is a reality um i think it's more like three and i think that it's more like three in the second half of the year i was out visiting with advisors though over the last two weeks there are some people out there that now think it's nothing for the year mm. now that mm. i think would surprise the market for sure absolutely but but i think for now i think consensus is about three that's sort of where i am I think the Fed should do nothing, Nancy Tanglin. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm, yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree, Larry. I mean, you know I've drawn an analogy of this market and economy to the 90s, and we really robust stock prices coexisted with uh, a, a 10-year yield between 5 and 7% on average during the decade. But one of the things that I think is important to note is that real rates are now – looking to be a bit too restrictive um, with the PCE, core PCE, at 2.6%. And we also know that behind the scenes the Fed is talking about uh, the balance sheet and easing, so that may be one of the ways they solve it. But uh, I, I, think, I think it's important to pay attention to real wages finally as well. And they've, they've come in, um, and, and actual wage growth has, has slowed pretty dramatically. So we'll see. I mean, I've, I've been um, – completely uh, just unimpressed at every at every move because we, we get one message from the Fed and then a matter of weeks later they do something else. So I guess my underlying premise is we don't need the Fed uh, to cut necessarily and we don't need the Fed um, to tell us how things are going to go. We just need companies to continue to pay attention to their bottom lines and that's, those are the companies we're focused on. Yeah, I mean, the Fed should just declare victory and go home. That's all. <laughs> just, just do nothing. And stop talking. Yeah, stop do not talking. talk. Do not do anything. It's like old Senator Aiken said about Vietnam, declare victory, go home. That's what the Fed mm-hmm. should do. They were completely wrong in their forecast, but it doesn't matter. And um, they should just not do anything. Many um, Stephanie, you got a favorite, you got a favorite uh, sector you want to talk about? Yeah, well, like a couple things. Um First, I think housing is one of my favorite themes this year for obvious reasons, with interest rates coming down, 5 million homes short in the country, 5 million millennials now first-time buyers, 13 years of underproduction. So I think the housing stocks are interesting, more of like the home improvement companies versus the builders, just because the builders have had such, such a nice run in the last year, and mm-hmm. the improvement stocks haven't done much. Cybersecurity, unfortunately, we hear about a cyber, cyber attack all the time. That is the place I want to be within technology. There really are only five really big powerhouse companies. I think they only get bigger, as you see, M&A. Consumer I love because I think, obviously, they're staying, as we talked earlier, they continue to stay strong. And then just two areas really quick where we're seeing a lot of M&A that's not getting a lot of respect. Healthcare last year did $378 billion in M&A, and, and energy did $400 billion dollars worth of M&A last year. And I think that speaks volumes that they think there's value out there. And I think there's value in those sectors. Nancy, favorite sectors? 
Yeah, I still do like technology. All tech is not created equal. I'm not talking about the Mag 7. Um, we also like old economy companies that are embracing technology and pivoting uh, to digital and cloud and, and generative AI. So that would be things in the industrial space. We're overweight in both of those. But we've added some interesting names recently. Um, we've added to REITs, but in growth REITs. So Prologis is a company where the CEO takes no salary um, and owns 2.1 million shares, and they have they are growing their logistics. And you need three times logistics space for, for online orders, and 22% of goods are ordered online. So I think that's really interesting. And then Brookfield Asset Management, kind of a shadow banking lender. We, we want to be in financials, but not necessarily in the traditional banks. And so that and American Express are two places where we're overweight, which means we also like the consumer a whole heap, and particularly the high-end consumer. I bet Taylor Swift sold her AI stocks. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that. That has nothing to do with anything. Please disregard that. I don't know. It just came in because I read the New York Post every morning, and I probably shouldn't, but I don't think she likes AI uh, at all. I do think, Nancy, to your point, I think the application of AI and quantum computing and all that is pretty good stuff. I mean, I think that's an economic driver. It is a bit like the 90s with the application of all the information tech breakthroughs. So I think that's part of it. Go ahead, Steph. of companies that have embraced uh, the digital or generative AI and those who haven't. And you can just, there's stark comparisons, like look at a Kohl's versus a Walmart or a McDonald's versus um, a Wendy's. These companies have, have really expanded margins, product development, and it's, it's, it is an important way for them to yeah. stay relevant in a, in a tech economy. All right, ladies. Economy. Thank you ever so much. Nancy Tangler of Lafayette Tangler Investments. Stephanie Link of uh, uh, Hightower Advisors and Investment Solutions. We appreciate it. It's all very panglossy, and stocks are just going to keep going up. And I own the index, so therefore I'm happy camper. I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break and come back with money and politics. Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around, folks. to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're going to do some money in politics. We've got Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist. We've got Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host, More Money, following this show on most of these same stations. Welcome back, kids. So, Steve Moore, I'm going to start with you. The economy is booming. Inflation is coming down, way down. The stock market is booming. And Joe Biden's running for re-election. He should be running on the economy. Big dope that he is. He doesn't even talk about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's going on here? I mean, you're, you're in a, basically almost a non-inflationary boom. So uh, I thought you, you nailed this last night or the night before I get days mixed up, but uh, where you really address this on your TV show, the number one rated show and uh, business TV, where you basically pointed out that so much of this is being driven 
by government. Yeah. And government really is the fastest growing sector of the economy. Uh, now, look, the, you know, things are better, no question about it. But there's a big problem when you have the, the sector of the economy that we should be shrinking because we're running trillion and a half dollar deficits and that's growing. And it's, it's not, it's both the expenditures and the employment, you know, government employment at the mm-hmm. state, federal and local level is growing a lot. That's problem number one, that this just isn't sustainable. Is it? It's, it's like having termites in the basement saying everything's just wonderful. The other problem is that if you look at what's happened to median income in the United States, and, mm-hmm. and you guys know that's people in the exact middle on the income spectrum, their wages and salaries are still running about 3% lower, mm-hmm. lower in real terms than when Donald Trump left office. So that means that the average family has lost, I don't know, about 2000 to $2,500 in real income. How is that? How is that a boom? For middle America. Final point. There's a reason why two out of three workers and families and respondents to polls are saying that they're not feeling the love for this economy because they're not feeling the gains. They're feeling poor as a result of of Biden's policies. So the question, Liz, is whether the affordability crisis that we've talked about continues uh, because uh, real wages are rising in recent months. Yeah. as the inflation comes down and the jobs are holding up. So that's going to be the big question. Right. Uh, it, it's just interesting to me that Biden doesn't know how to sell. I mean, he's starting to get it out there. Uh, his people, Janet Yellen, are starting to get it out there. But they don't really know how to sell a better economy. But the economy is better. There's no. We, we could talk about the explanations and the causes and whatever, but it is getting better. Yeah, but so I think you make a really interesting point. He has been talking up Bidenomics, right? I mean, mm. and, and we've all been sort of scornful of that. So it isn't like he hasn't paid attention to the economy and tried to convince people that the economy is doing well. But, Larry, think about what really in specific he really touts as his achievements on the economy. Probably number one is climate. And we saw that, mm. again, raise its ugly head yesterday when he decided – uh, to halt uh, the addition <laughs> of incremental Crazy. LNG yeah. export terminals, which has to be, I'm writing a piece calling it the dumbest thing they've done yet, and <laughs> right. that's hmm. pretty competitive territory. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I really... By the way, I from a TikTok influencer. Yeah, so so the middle class is 60% of expected voters. That's pretty astonishing. People forget. I'm talking about working class Americans. Mm-hmm. And... The other thing that Biden talks about, and by the way, it's more in swing states, so he really needs those votes. The other thing he talks about a lot is manufacturing. Guess what? Manufacturing is not doing well. I mean, it's actually been declining. I've said before on your program, and it's true, the number of manufacturing jobs right now in the United States is actually just almost exactly the same as it was in the fourth quarter of 2019. So for all that he keeps talking about, America's back and America's making things. We're not. I mean, that's just a complete fiction. Now, if he continues with government-funded expansion of industries that don't need government assistance, like semiconductors, yeah, I think eventually you'll see that that does create some jobs, not a huge number because they're very automated plants and small plants. But I do think that may be down the road. But what Americans are looking at in that category, the middle class or working class or whatever, they don't see much improvement in their lives. And I think that 
uh, you know, they're not big EV buyers, folks. And that's kind of a problem for Joe Biden. He should, you know, stop talking about Bidenomics, which is like Herbert Hoover. He should change it to being in favor of Reaganomics. Yeah, that'll that'll not happen. I'm running on Reaganomics. But he doesn't like he attacked rich people again, Steve, and he attacked the Trump tax cuts again this week. Instead of touting the economy, he's attacking the Trump tax cuts, which probably are contributing to the economy because they never repealed the corporate tax cut. In fact, they didn't repeal hardly any of the tax cuts still out there. Yeah, that's pumped a lot of adrenaline in the economy. And it's clearly clearly his second term agenda. God forbid, if he gets one Mm -hmm. is to repeal everything on the Trump. Not just repeal the Trump tax cut, but they want to raise tax. They want to raise the dividend tax, the capital gains tax, the income tax rates, the small business rate. They want to tax unrealized capital gains. It will be it will be a bloodbath for the economy if Biden goes forward. And by the way, I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the budget proposal that he came out with, Mm. uh, you know, last year. So that's a big one. The other thing is, you know, Liz mentioned quite correctly how absolutely crazy his energy policy is it it's it's you know we should be exporting way way more natural gas and we should be exporting way way more oil like we were doing under trump and then the other thing i'm just so mystified by this i don't understand why the democrats are so pro illegal immigration it's the, mm. it's the craziest thing they will do nothing and now they say oh we need a comprehensive immigration strategy no we don't we need to control the border for god's yeah. sakes and yeah. they refuse to do it even though this is like <coughs> this is just killing them politically so the the senate deal which is not on paper there's no text i'm against it text. i'm against it yeah i mean they're going to let in 5 to 8000 a day yeah. I don't think that's a deal. I mean, I don't no, think that's a very good deal. Uh, and they're going to give work permits away and all the rest of it. They're going to have lawyers, public lawyers, defend them in the asylum hearings. I mean, I don't get that. But I just it's going to be a big shootout between the House and the Senate. I don't know if the Senate, there's conservative Republicans, about 25 of them, probably going to be against it. But I don't know. <laughs> the deal is cooking, Liz. Five to, I, I don't know what the exact numbers are going to be, but five to 8,000 illegals will be permitted into the country under this deal. Is that a good deal? Well, look, I, I, I think you have to go back to Biden. Uh, the White House keeps talking about, oh, if only Republicans had passed our 2021 bill, but day one of our administration, we offered up, you know, sensible immigration reform. You know what the name of that bill was? It was the 2021 Citizenship Bill. It was all about literally making citizens, allowing a path to citizenship of every person in the country illegally. That was never going to fly. They knew it wasn't going to fly. And there are elements of that bill that are showing up in what we think is the proposal on the table now. It's not going to fly. I mean, and it is now being portrayed as obstinate Republicans holding out to keep this a festering wound so that uh, Donald Trump can run on it. Uh, It's not that. It's that it's a lousy deal if it indeed incorporates what you're talking about. And, you know, let's talk again about working class Americans. It used to be the case that unions in particular, uh, union leadership was really opposed to unmitigated immigration because it brought down lower end wages. Guess what? That is still an issue. And Mm. I think when you start talking to black voters about how 
un- uh, uneducated people are coming in and taking an awful lot of jobs that teenagers can get and that people right out of school can get and stuff. And believe me, that's what's happening. Uh, people without high school degrees are competing, legal citizens, with this 8 million people who come into the country since Biden took office. That's a real negative in terms of voters and yeah. particularly, again, the voters that Joe Biden wants to win over. And by the way, Larry, it's not just, a, you know, it's not just an economic issue, which it is. Um, the fact is, you know, as a political matter, Donald Trump is right. You know, mm-hmm. build the wall, control the border. This is not a complicated issue for the American people. Joe Biden has yeah. zero, zero credibility with the American people on this. I mean, when you have when you have uh, video of Joe Biden's border enforce quote enforcement people cutting with cutting the fences so they can come in. I mean, I think the Republicans should make no deal whatsoever with with Biden. Say we have a deal. It's HR two, the bill that passed the House back in what it was January or February that that takes you know dramatic uh, steps to stop the flow of illegal immigration. And by the way, I'm pro-immigration. I think immigrants mm-hmm. are great for the country, but they got to come in legally. So I don't want any deal, Larry. And Trump is right. You want to solve the immigration problem? The Supreme Court made it very clear. You've got to get a new president. And every American knows that Donald Trump will solve this problem. Yeah, yeah it's the strongest. That's right. But they're going to say, and and I, I, Kevin Kramer was out earlier, and he's a pretty conservative senator. But but I think the argument is going to be cutting it from ten thousand a day to five thousand a day is a big deal. <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, it, I it's don't. Ridiculous. I, that's it's ridiculous. That's what they're going to say. Get ready, Senate Republicans. Wait, what's that sound I hear? Squish, squish. Yeah, squish, really. I mean, squish. how did how does anyone think that's solving the problem? It is not solving the problem. We are supposed to be a nation of laws, and you don't have to be a lunatic to think that that also applies to the southern border. But to, to Steve's point, the visual of Joe Biden attacking Governor Abbott and mm-hmm. kind of threatening that the military is going to confront the National Guard, Texas's National Guard. Are you kidding? And there are like, what, 10 states now also sending National Guard. to Are we going to have a civil war? People fighting over the border? This is mm-hmm. this is truly insane. And That's really, fair. They're fighting over barbed wire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it's nuts. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just love this. No deal. Uh, no deal. I'm with you. No deal. Debt and uh, debt and deficits. We're living on borrowed time. I'm Cudlow. We're going to stations. I'll be right back, kids. Larry Cudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host. More money following this station on most of these same stations. Um, let's talk about the presidential race. Let's talk about an interesting column um, by Kim uh, Strassel, basically asking what is Nikki Haley's predicate? What is she running on? The Wall Street Journal editorial page, which smashes Trump at every turn, but they Mm -hmm. hinted at the same thing this week. Like, what are you running on? Why do you want to be president? 
Steve Moore, why does she want to be president? I'm not sure I understand any of it. Look, I mean, she's gotten soundly defeated in the first two states. I do think it's I think it's it's her right to stay in the race. I mean, maybe there's a slim, slim uh, avenue for her. Uh, I didn't like Trump's trashing her after that speech. And he gave such a great speech after the Iowa thing. Um, but look, she's out after South Carolina. There's no, you know, that's in the southern states. Trump is unbelievably popular, I mean, <laughs> unbelievably popular. So I, I'm not disturbed by the fact that she's still in. Uh, she's got a lot of big money from a lot of your friends, Larry, that are that's <laughs> sweeping into her coffers to keep her in the race. But look, the <clears throat> bottom line is that it is Donald Trump is going to re- be the Republican nominee. Uh, and, you know, if we had been sitting here a year ago there was a lot about a lot of doubt about whether trump could put it back together again boy has he in a big big way well it's just yeah it just lives that i think nikki haley never had like trump ran corporate tax cuts the border um steve forbes we're talking about this on the tv show last night you know steve forbes ran on a flat tax Steve Forbes ran on, you know, reforming Social Security by allowing investment choices. Younger people could invest. Um, Ronald Reagan ran on tax cuts and, you know, defeating the Soviet Union's uh, communism. I never could figure out, Liz, what exactly Nikki Haley was running on, and I think that's hurt her quite a bit. Well, I I think I thought Kim's article was actually excellent. Like, Like Steve, she doesn't bash Haley for continuing in the race, pointing out that, you know, the margin of victory in the last uh, two states by Donald Trump, uh, in, in terms of the, the matchup of, of um, delegates right now, Trump is no further ahead than most people coming into this period of the race. So there's no reason for her to get out, really, at this point. But, but like the editorial page, she kind of goes after Haley for not having a clear message. What is to your point, what is she running for? And and actually, it surprises me because I think as uh, the only woman in the race, she could have definitely picked up on Glenn Youngkin's uh, protection of families, protection of education, school choice. Trump is for school choice, but he doesn't really make it a top liner. And I think for a lot of Americans, it is a top liner. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also obviously is more aggressive on uh, China and so forth. But her problem with that is, Trump's been there. He did that. He Mm. was the initial uh, instigator or he kind of woke people up to China's bad behavior. So, you know, that's kind of a follow on for Haley. And and so I think it's true. I think she needs to lay out her path. And if not now, when? Because to Steve's point, you know, I think that the margin in South Carolina has narrowed slightly. But, boy, it's still 25 points or something. And that's her home state. It's going to look terrible if she gets if the if the polls are even remotely right, that's going to look pretty bad. But By so the, the way, thing I is, would... you know, the thing is that um, the one important point is I didn't like Trump trashing her. I was just uh, going to be- say, I be- echo you know, because, that 100%. Because he needs, he's going to need those voters, Larry. He needs those yeah. voters to win. And he won those voters in 2016, and he, he lost a number of them in 2020. So I, I just don't see the... You know, the calculus there, by the way, the one big issue that, you know, uh, Nikki Haley made a big deal out of was cutting Social Security benefits. That's crazy. I mean, how many times do Republicans have to learn their lesson that they're going to get, 
you know, completely burned at the state for t- politically for talking about cutting Social Security benefits. Steve Forbes is right. We should make a better deal, not a worse deal for people. Yeah, I mean, why and, not? Why not introduce? Why not introduce approved? exchange funds for stocks yes. and bonds. Yes. Why not introduce that? You want to help young people. Why not? Yeah. It's a good it's a yeah. great campaign issue. And also, I, look, Trump owns the border issue, right? I mean, that is now the number yeah. one issue in the country. I'm not sure there's anything Nikki Haley could do about that, but she didn't do much about that early in, and neither did DeSantis. I mean, it's just Trump's issue. Well, and I think the other big issue is the economy. And she hasn't really offered up anything particularly noteworthy about the economy. I want to echo what Steve said about him hitting down at Nikki. He is the front runner. He doesn't need to do that. And just like a corporate CEO looks smaller if he beats up on his direct reports, it makes Trump look smaller. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if he can help himself, but this is not helping him. And Going back to our conversation about, look, independents are 40 percent of the electorate. You're not going to win just with Republican votes. So bashing the people who are inclined, saying you're going to exclude people who back Nikki Haley from your MAGA world, give me a break. It's a dumb idea. So After, I after wish- South after South Carolina, he'll go back to the unity. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. That's Larry. the way this is going to work. Yeah, yeah Remember- I hope so. You know, front runners always quarrel with challengers. John F. Kennedy took LBJ. I mean, they hated each other. I mean, I I don't get that excited about it. Uh, you know, she heckled him about his yeah. age. She heckled him about forgetting some congressman's name. So he, he kind of got teed off at that. I sort of liked watching him get teed off. I don't know. He's a Queens fighter. Just, that's the way he is. Now, train, train that venom on, on Joe Biden, though. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. that's what we need to do, because, man, four more years under Joe Biden, it's unconscious. I can't even imagine it, truly. There's so many things going wrong, and they're going to go wrong again, despite having a couple of good quarters of growth. Debt and deficits. We're living on borrowed time, Steve Moore. I know this. Is, you love this stuff, but I think you may have it right now. <laughs> Debt and deficits. Yeah. Even Even I think it's getting out of hand. Even I yeah. and I have I love that, but I think it's getting out of hand. <laughs> anyway, shrink shrink the government, grow the private sector. I agree. Drain the swamp. Liz Peak, best of the best. <laughs> Steve Moore's radio show. More money coming up right after this show on most of these same stations. Thanks to both of you, folks. Thank I'm Cudlow. You. We'll be back next weekend. <laughs>